Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. Uncovering the past and seeing life as it was in Connecticut back in the 17th century. We visit the Hollister Farm in South Glastonbury to find out more about this uniquely preserved farm complex. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. History is always a fascinating subject, be it modern history or the really old stuff. And here in the US, fascination about how the English came to these shores and how they lived, how they interacted or otherwise with the indigenous Native American Indian tribes and the trade and businesses they carried out continues to be unearthed. Lieutenant John Hollister was an English settler who came to Connecticut back in the 17th century and he set down roots in the country. Back in 2013, interest was shown in his farmland in South Glastonbury, which remains in the Hollister family through direct descendants and archaeological digs commenced. Over time, modern technology has revealed buried structures on the land and through careful and painstakingly slow work, more than 30,000 items have been recovered so far, helping to paint an accurate view of life back in the mid-1600s. I had the privilege to visit the site courtesy of Sarah Sportman, the state archaeologist for Connecticut, and here's a taste of what they've been doing and what they're finding. Sarah, second time we're seeing you. We're somewhere different. Um, obviously, we're not going to give the location away, but we can just say that we are actually in South Glastonbury at a 17th century farm complex, I believe. That's correct? Yes, that's correct. This is the Lieutenant Hollister site here in South Glastonbury, right on the Connecticut River. It is a 17th century farm complex that was occupied from about the late 1640s to about 1710. Why is this a significant site? Because I know you've been here for many years, continuing to obviously you know, find many things. So why is it significant? This site is significant for a number of reasons. First of all, it is one of the best preserved early English colonial sites that we have. Preservation out here is astonishing, actually. And one of the reasons for that is that it is a site that was occupied only until 1710, and there was no development that overprinted that. So what you have after 1710 is simply used as agricultural fields and pasture. So nothing else has ever been built here. No other excavations have been done here. The only other thing that was ever here was a big tobacco barn in the early 20th century, and that just was on a couple of posts. So there's very little disturbance out here. And when did you start, obviously, start digs here? Because it's been going on for a number of years now, hasn't it? Yeah, so the first dig was done, I think, in 2013 by the previous state archaeologist, Nick Bellantoni, who was asked to come out here and do a survey. And they didn't find a whole lot that year. It was a very hot day, and they kind of stuck to the shady tree line areas. But 
Brian Jones, who subsequently became state archaeologist after Nick retired, was out there that day, and he came out in the field and dug a test pit and found some 17th century materials. So when he got the job in 2014, they started a much bigger project out here. And what he did was bring in somebody to do ground-penetrating radar survey of this property, and that is a technology that can kind of help us see soil anomalies below the ground surface, and the sandy soils here on this floodplain are perfect for that. It doesn't work well in a lot of Connecticut because it's so stony, but here you don't have a problem. You can see really well. And what they found was a number of large rectangular signatures in the ground penetrating radar, and they realized that they might very well be buried cellars. So they started excavating, testing around the cellars and into them, and found an incredible wealth of material. And the project has been growing out of that ever since. Give us a sense of, uh, you've got something actually in front of us here, which I guess is part of that ground-penetrating radar image, is yes. it? Yes, this is a map showing the um, ground-penetrating radar imagery from 2016. We're standing right about here on top of one of the cellars that's under the ground here. We have folks this year digging in this cellar, which is an area that, these, there were three cellars that were tested back in 2016, and they all had deep stratified deposits with tremendous preservation of food remains, domestic items, bone, shell, dishes, gun flints, nails, straight pins, anything you can imagine pretty much is here. So this is all very different from when we saw you at two Razzling Cats, which of course <laughs> was a much, much older right. sort of like archaeological site, right. and we were seeing obviously little bits of flint and stone. Yeah. We're actually seeing stuff that I suppose people romantically want to, you know, to, you know, to see, don't they, or find yeah. you know, when they go to these archaeological digs. Tell us a little bit more. So one of the things that's really phenomenal about this site, apart from its history, which I think we should talk about in a minute, because it's really um, kind of at the nexus of a lot of the things that are going on in the 17th century, is that the preservation at this site is so astonishing. So when we were at the two wrestling cat site, which is obviously, as you said, much older, all we have left is stone. Everything else that people used had degraded, deteriorated, was gone. And that's often the case with historical archaeology as well. Even the more recent sites, you lose a lot of material due to deterioration, particularly in places with acidic soils like Connecticut. But what we have here is preservation, particularly in these deep cellar features, that we're really getting a picture of everything people threw away, because everything is preserved. And one of the reasons for that, such as the cellar that we're digging in this year, is that people were throwing their garbage in there, but they were also throwing the ashes from their fireplaces in there repeatedly. And the ash is neutralizing the acid in the soil and helping to create a good environment for preservation. So we're finding, all, we're finding fish scales, charred corn kernels, straight pins, um, beads. So we're basically seeing everything people threw away, not just the stuff that was sturdy enough to last. So it's a real snapshot of life. It really is. And it's a remarkable. And that's why this site is so significant. It's not just its age, which is, you know, we don't have a lot of good 17th century sites here in Connecticut to date, but it's also the preservation. You said you wanted to talk about the history. Give us the lowdown on that. Yeah, so on on this side of the river in in South Glastonbury and Glastonbury um, was part of Weathersfield in the 17th century. And Weathersfield was one of the first three towns, Windsor, Weathersfield, and Hartford. And the land on this side of the river was allotted to people who lived in Weathersfield in these long strip lots that would extend three miles from the Connecticut River into the uplands to the east. And the idea was that people would get a good mosaic of environments, a range of different 
farm, pasture, woodlot, fresh water, a range of different resources that they would have then on those properties. Because at the time, everybody was kind of, you know, living and working at a subsistence level, and they needed all of those different resources. So this particular property was originally owned by the Reverend Richard Denton, who was um, an early resident of Weathersfield. He was there in the second half of the 1630s. And he only stayed for a little while. He left to found Stamford in 1641. And we don't know if he ever had anybody living out here, but he very well may have had somebody out here managing his crops and fields. So there might be a house that goes back that, that old. We don't have a good handle on that yet. After Denton, it came into the hands of Lieutenant John Hollister, who was another person who lived in Weathersfield in the, in, in the 1640s. And he also doesn't seem to have ever really lived out here, but he had people out here managing the property. So in 1651, he leases the property to members of the Gilbert family from Massachusetts as a tenant farm. So they're out here working the land, raising animals and crops, and paying him rent, basically, in goods and in cash for for that. But I think that the interesting aspect about that family is that they seem to be more than just farmers. The Gilberts are a family that um, they come from England. They settle originally in Braintree, Massachusetts. And three of the older brothers are here in Connecticut in the 1640s. One is in Windsor. One is in Hartford. And the other, I think, is in Weathersfield. And they're very interesting in that the older brother, Thomas Gilbert, his wife, Lydia Gilbert, is convicted of witchcraft in 1654 and executed, we think. And he leaves and goes to Springfield. The other brother, Jonathan, is a becomes a really important person in Connecticut Colony. He works as an interpreter to the Native people, so they have that connection. And he also has a warehouse on the river that is tied into the fur trade and the early Caribbean trade. So that's really interesting, too. So we're kind of at the nexus of all of these things. The other brother, John, is married to the wife of Thomas Stanton, who's the colony's interpreter. And he also has Native American language skills and often goes out on behalf of the colony to interact with Native people, to bring messages, to be involved in negotiations during the contentious period after the Pequot War. So these guys are tied into a lot of different things that are going on out here. The two younger brothers, Josiah and Obadiah, also seem to have ties to the Dutch, which is interesting. So they leave in the 1650s for a while, go to New York, and settle in um, Oosdorp or Easttown, which is an English settlement right in the heart of Dutch territory. And when the Dutch try to evict them, they actually all sign a document saying that we'll abide by Dutch law. So we seem to have connections to all these different aspects of history here at the site, which is really intriguing. And then the Hollister family themselves also has ties to Native communities, you know, their movers and shakers in colonial politics and that kind of thing. So it's a really significant site for everything that's going on here. Like we said at the top of this interview, you've been here for a number of years. I mean, you know, it started obviously before you became um, state archaeologist. How many years do you think you'll be here? I mean, is, it, is this just going to be an ongoing project? I think it will. And one of the reasons for that is that, you know, this is a thing that we do for a few weeks every year. And then we recover so much material and information that we go back to the lab, analyze it all, get it cleaned up, inventory, try to figure out what's going on and build on the story. But it's going to be, a, you know, a building situation where we build on the previous years. And it could go on for, you know, I think as long as they'll let us keep coming out here. <laughs> Any particular significant finds of interest, you know, um, that may have occurred recently or have occurred, you know, um, previously? 
Yeah, so there's a lot of really interesting things about this site. One is that we know it's an English site. We know it's a farm. But the vast majority of the animal bones that we're recovering from the site are wild species. The diet here seems to be primarily based on deer and other wild animals, and then a mix of European and indigenous crops. So you've got corn, beans, but also wheat and things like that, um, and also local kind of wild plants. You know, the diet, it's very strange because we know that they're raising animals here on the land and it just doesn't seem like anybody's eating them which is really intriguing so that raises questions of what they're doing with those animals are they raising them for export to the caribbean are they raising them for markets locally but even in situations where people do that on other sites you still see english people primarily eating an english diet and we're not getting that here which is really interesting and that's not the only information that we have that really kind of ties people to the indigenous people on the landscape at this time period we have many pieces of native american pottery coming out of some of our cellar contacts suggesting that english people on the site were using these pots as part of their you know their foodways which is really intriguing and I have some of those if you want to see them um, so we also have evidence of we have wampum which is um, shell beads that were used those would have been used by everybody in the 17th century but to find them is really you really have to have good preservation to find them because they're very small and delicate they're used as a form of currency although they're traditionally a Native American made item we have a range of different ceramics and other types of uh, materials, particularly from the earlier periods of the site, that really reflect the kind of international market markets that were um, around in the um, 17th century. We've got ceramics that are Dutch, Portuguese, Spanish, English, French, German. So, you know, it really is a global economy in the 17th century until the English kind of, you know, double down on their hold on the colonies and kind of strangle that off a little bit and make people buy more English goods and kind of block the other stuff from coming in. So we really have a lot of the big processes that are happening historically in the 17th century reflected here on this site. So I'm talking to the property owner of the archaeological site that we're standing on. So how did you like come to own the property as it were? And, and you're here obviously deep in the archaeological like dig. So just talk to us generally about this journey. Okay, so my grandfather bought the place in, in 1922 and my mother grew up here. My mother always told me that there was, the first house in town was out in the back. When my uncle passed away, we had the opportunity to purchase the farm. So my wife and I thought this would be a great place to raise our kids, which we did. So my kids are fourth generation on the farm. My next-door neighbor, he knew where the well was. It was all covered over, but we rode the horses back and forth one day. And he pointed to a spot in the middle of the pasture and said, that, that's where the well is. And somebody else came by with a backhoe, and they, I said, oh, just take a scoop right there. And sure enough, there was the round circle of stones. So from there, we had the historical society come down, do a dig. We, didn't, we found a bunch of things from the 20th century. But somebody said, oh, I'm just going to look at the well. And they found a few teeth, like pig's teeth and things in the well. Just enough so that the state archaeologists got interested, came back. And um, over the years, the ground penetrating radar has gotten better. And they've just been able to find an amazing amount of things here. You're out here today. I mean, as you said, it's been, um, they've been back here year after year, obviously, courtesy of, of yourself allowing them to come back. We've got a lot of people here today, a lot of tents. And as I said, you're very intently like, working with them. So clearly there's a passion and a deep interest in what is on your property. 
Well, so I'm my 10th great grandfather is Lieutenant John Hollister, and so this is his place from 1640 to 1710 or so. And then even after that, the second, third generations farm it, but it was their farm from about 1640. It's just amazing to be able to see what what they have, what they used, what's left over. They've been able to map their diet. They found corn out here from 300 years ago. Kernels of corn are still here. Beans, all the bones that go along. We found um, a metatarsal bone, which I had no idea what it was. It was like nine inches long. And metatarsal is like the back of your hand kind of bone. It was from a bear. Some, you know, an expert in bones looks at it. Oh, that's a bear. <laughs> Just crazy, crazy, amazing stuff going on. As a direct descendant of this, you know, the property owners, you say, back in the, the, the 1600s, I mean, do you feel a sense of, how can I put this, a sense of responsibility in a way to sort of like help preserve this? Because the state archaeologist, Sarah, says this is one of the best preserved 17th century farm complexes in the state. Well, there, of course, there's a little bit of that going on, and it being the family even more so. Luckily, there there hasn't been pressure to develop out here. We're we're near the river. You're not allowed to build a house, that kind of thing. But yeah, there's there's a little responsibility, you know, trying to let you know some people want to come out and dig, and they're not with the state archaeologist. You know, that's we don't let that happen. If they want to come out when Sarah's out here, that that's one thing. And what, what fires you up? Because like I said, you're out here with everybody. They're diligently working away with sifts and all sorts of, you know, sort of like delicate instruments to make sure nothing gets, you know, missed, broken, um, whatever. So, you know, is it just a general interest because there's so much being found here and it's been going on for such a while? Well, I like to learn how it's put together. Sarah, too, it's, some, of the big thing, some of the biggest things are just different colors of dirt. And, and you're looking at it and... We had a cellar over here that was, they call earth-fast construction, so no stones. It was put together with boards, and they were able to go down and show you right where the board was. And the, all, the only difference is that the color sand just changed for one inch where the board went through. That stuff is just amazing, how, what, how the farm was put together. That's really neat. And as we said, this has been going on for a number of years. I'm guessing it's going to go on for a number of years as long as, obviously, you're happy to allow them to keep coming back. So Brian Jones was the first state archaeologist who worked out here, and he, I think he thought 15 years, 10 or 15, I can't even remember. But it seems like the more we dig, the more questions there are. So, And obviously, every, people are interested. It's so much fun to see the kids out here learning how to do it. It could, who knows how long it's going to go. We don't know. Well, it's an important part, obviously, of Connecticut's history, and they're very lucky to have somebody who is so passionate and obviously interested uh, uh, you know, to, to find out about it. So thank you ever so much, and I'll let you get back on and uh, join in with the rest of the dig today. Thanks for the interview. Thank you. Appreciate it. And you can always find out more about the work of the state archaeologists at their website by visiting osa.ucon.edu. If I could be you, and you could be me, for just one hour. If you could find a way to get inside each other's mind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk Walk a mile mile in in my my shoes. We've all felt left out. And for some, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. 
brought to you by the Ad Council. Walk a mile in my shoes. The warmer weather is here, and it's time to give your plants some health care. From mulching to aeration to growth regulator, remedial and preventative treatments against fungus, as well as insects like the spotted lanternfly and gypsy moth. Don't be reactive, be proactive, and keep your trees and plants in tip-top condition to avoid long-term health problems. Find more details about plant health care services. Call 860-234-4041 or visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week, sponsored by... Healing Therapies Through Sharing is Eastern Connecticut's holistic wellness center for those recently diagnosed or living with a cancer diagnosis and their caregivers. We offer a range of services including adult and pediatric oncology massage, lymphatic drainage, craniosacral therapy, yoga for cancer, and much more. For details about our full range of services and our team of licensed professional therapists and providers, visit our website at healingtherapiesct.org or call us on 860-443-0800. We look forward to hearing from you. The identity of the Connecticut Port Authority board member who accepted illegal gifts from a consulting firm looking for business from the authority known as Seabury LLC has been revealed. Tom Frost was a current serving board member of the authority and is named in a sworn affidavit from Seabury Chief Financial Officer Jeffrey Erickson, obtained through a Freedom of Information request. In the affidavit, Erickson lists Frost and former Port Authority Executive Director Evan Matthews and his wife as having been guests of Seabury employee and former CPA board member Henry Wan and his wife for dinner and drinks on August 16, 2017, gifts which are illegal under Connecticut state law. Current Authority Chair David Cora said in a statement that he is frustrated that Frost did not take the opportunity to voluntarily identify himself last month when current board members were asked whether they were involved in the illegal gifts that were investigated by the Connecticut Office of State Ethics. Cora says that Frost's voting history for the authority will now be researched to determine how it relates to the 2018 contract and its amendments between the CPA and Seabury LLC, as well as his continued position as a board member. In an interview Frost said the matter was not as cut and dried as it appeared. The problems are political, they're not physical, and the fact that the word here is gifts versus something entirely different, and within the context of the business that I've been in, there was no way I could understand anything other than that. Frost says many individuals past and present on the board agree that there were many flaws when the authority was created. He says experts like himself with deep maritime experience were given no real voice on the authority board and had information kept from them about decision-making by former board chairs. Speaker of the House Matt Ritter moved swiftly to the news about Frost and replaced him on the authority board, saying he and the legislator had been speaking back in 2021 about reviewing board members and committee positions for Connecticut agencies and quasi-publics. The feeling of the Port Authority is it was going through a lot of turmoil, and there was a general feeling from the legislature and the governor and folks from that area that they were going to try to have some continuity on the board, some stability. This gentleman was valued by some for his experience in this field, and we agreed to revisit it after the session of 2022. 
I believe we would have ultimately replaced him with our own person, but this expedited that process. Ritter has appointed Lawrence McHugh, president of the Middlesex County Chamber of Commerce and former chairman of the Yukon Board of Trustees. Although McHugh has been appointed to the position, it is still subject to consent from both chambers of the General Assembly. Senate Republican leader pro tem Paul Formica, who previously wrote a letter with Senator Kevin Kelly, asking the authority to identify the staff and board members involved in the impermissible gifts issue, says he's concerned the board has now even less maritime experience than before. You know, I'm concerned we're replacing maritime experience with, you know, political experience and business experience. And I guess if anybody can do the job and, and pick up on that, it would be it would be McHugh, but I have some concerns about that. And longtime Port Authority critic Kevin Blacker says many of the board members' terms have or will expire soon, and it's time to wipe the slate clean. Just shows that when they want to do something, they, they fully can. Uh, Mr. Frost had maritime experience despite bad judgment. They replaced him with somebody with, as far as I can see, no maritime experience. The entire board you know, anyone that was present during the time of, of all of the previous problems needs to be replaced, and there's many of them. Seabree settled with the Office of State Ethics over the impermissible gifts and paid a $10,000 fine last month. However, they are still being investigated by the State Attorney General's office regarding a half a million dollar success fee they were paid by the authority for helping to find Gateway as the Newport Management Company for the authority's state peer project in New London. More investment is needed across Connecticut to support the economic well-being and education of children. That's according to a new annual report. Edwin J. Vieira from the Connecticut News Service has this report. The Annie E. Casey Foundation's Kids Count Data Book finds the number of children in poverty and those whose parents lack secure employment remain the same at 13 and 26 percent respectively. And they haven't changed much in the last decade. Emily Byrne with Connecticut Voices for Children identifies the investments that could be made to address the stagnant numbers. We need to figure out ways where we can do a better job of connecting parents to good jobs. We need to invest substantially in affordable housing for families. And we need to figure out ways that we can make the high cost of living and the high cost specifically of raising children in the state, more affordable. In terms of kids' health, Connecticut moved from 7th to 8th nationwide. That's partly due to more kids ages 10 through 17 being overweight or obese, from 25% two years ago to 31%. Byrne feels food insecurity is playing a role, as lack of a healthy diet has been linked to pediatric obesity. But the report says more children now have health insurance. I'm Edwin J. Vieira. In the Connecticut Examiner this week, a state police lieutenant who covers eastern Connecticut has filed a second complaint alleging workplace harassment and discrimination, this time by a captain who supervises him and who he says is retaliating for his previous allegations against the top civilian aide to Commissioner James Rivella. Lieutenant Adam Rosenberg filed a formal complaint with the agency's Internal Affairs Unit that claims Captain Kenneth Kane's hostile treatment stems from Rosenberg's earlier accusations that civilian political appointee Scott DeVico discriminated against him because he is Jewish. DeVico is currently under investigation by state officials for sending an email to other agency personnel in May of this year that was titled, in quotes,
quotes, inbred Jews, close quotes. A subject line DeVico claims was created by his cell phone's email autocorrect feature when he typed in the word interview. Rosenberg, a trooper for 15 years who holds multiple supervisory positions, is one of only a handful of Jewish heritage on the force. In the day this week, while Stonington is set to receive new technology that could prevent wrong-way driving deaths, State Senator Heather Summers is lobbying to install the technology elsewhere in southeastern Connecticut. The announcement of $20 million in state funding to prevent wrong-way driving deaths prompted questions from Summers as to what projects may be planned for the region. At the moment, only one of 16 locations in Connecticut is identified for the technology is available in southeastern Connecticut, but the State Department of Transportation said it's possible the program could be expanded. The money will go toward putting cameras on wrong-way signs throughout the state that will be set off if a driver is driving the wrong way. In the Norwich Bulletin this week, in Norwich, a new manufacturer has made an $18 million investment in the city. Nevera, formerly known as Solar Seal Architectural, is moving operations from eastern Massachusetts to Norwich. The company, which makes architectural glass for commercial buildings, including skyscrapers, is aiming to employ 90 people in total. Jeff Heinz, senior vice president for Nevera, said there's ongoing work for the 40 Wisconsin Avenue building, which the company is renting for at least 10 years. The company has around 25 employees, including some kept from the prior operation, and will be fully operational in the latter part of 2023, depending on equipment availability. When the factory is done, the facility can make from 2.5 million to 5 million square feet of glass in a year. However, there's enough space in the 200,000 square foot facility to double the output with expansion. Norwich City Manager John Salomon said the biggest economic benefit to the city is through its power consumption. Nevera will be Norwich Public Utilities' largest customer four times more than the next largest customer. And in the Chronicle this week, the state denied the town of Wyndham funding for solar projects at the landfill and parking garage, but the town will have another opportunity to apply for funding. Wyndham Town Manager Jim Rivers said he was notified that the application was denied. However, Rivers said there is nothing wrong with the projects and they are in the queue. Rivers said he doesn't know when the next round of funding will open. He said there have been delays getting funding for other solar projects in Wyndham before. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening.